The following sermon is by Dr. Josh Scally, pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. Please visit us at 2100 Noble Road in Raleigh or on the web at ebcraleigh.com. And now, here's Pastor Josh. So this Thursday will be the Christmas concert, and then Sunday will be Christmas Eve already. And Lord willing, we'll look at Luke 2 for both of those gatherings, and we'll look at the well-known narrative of the birth of Christ. Today, though, we continue in John 1, and John continues to introduce Jesus to us, and he does so now through the testimony of John the Baptist. And what John the Baptist most famously says in this passage, I think it's the heart of it, is, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And that's the title for today's sermon. And that's why I asked Spencer to please sing that, and that was beautiful, and that was a great blessing. So now let's see that truth from the Bible. And I think that the truth that John is preparing us for, that he was preparing his readers for, calls for four responses. And so today I'll have on the screen four ways that we ought to respond. And I'll just leave them there. They'll be up there the whole time. Because of who Jesus is, making straight the path of the Lord, I think John is trying to tell us these four things. We need to receive our king as king. We need to come to the king who takes away sin. We need to yield to the king's construction. And we need to herald the king. Okay? So let's see that from the passage this morning. We're in John 1. Behold the Lamb of God. If you're using the Pew Bible, it's page 1054. Otherwise, John 1, verse 19, in your copy of God's breathed out word. Verse 19, and this is the testimony of John. And lest we be confused, this is John the Baptist, not John the Apostle, who's the human author of this book. And here's what we read. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? We'll pause here a little bit. The, the word Jews is used in John's gospel in a few ways. Sometimes it means the Jewish people, but more often it means the Jewish leaders. And normally it has a negative connotation. So the leaders, religiously, of the Jewish people, we find out in verse 24, it's the Pharisees in particular who have come. And normally, unfortunately, their coming is, is, is a bad thing. They're coming normally to oppose the work of Jesus Christ, and that's essentially the beginning of what we read here. They come from Jerusalem, and they come to Bethany, and I'm going to pause on that for a second. There are two Bethanies in John's gospel. This is not the one in chapter 11 that's close by. This is one that's about 25 miles away. So it's an eight and a half hour walk from Jerusalem. In other words, whatever's happening with John the Baptist is a big deal. That's why Jewish religious leaders are making this long journey to figure out what is happening that is such a tremendous and notable thing. And so they say to him, who are you? A fair question to ask in the law, in Deuteronomy, if someone's making prophetic claims or doing prophetic action, you're supposed to inquire as to who they are. So their question is not a wrong one. Who are you, they ask. And the other Gospels give us all these details about John the Baptist. But in John the Apostle's Gospel, the one we have in front of us here, he gives sparse details on purpose. Because John has always made it a point in his Gospel to just get to the heart of the matter. So in John 1, we already read in verses 6 through 8 and verse 15, 
that John the Baptist is the one who is not the light, but bears witness to the light. He's the one who said, this person who comes after me is actually before me, and he existed before me. So that's the introduction we have to who this John the Baptist character is. And now let's let this historical record unfold on its own. So verse 20, the dialogue between John the Baptist and the Jewish religious leaders. He confessed, but did not deny or, sorry, he confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. So apparently when John the Baptist heard them ask, who are you? He knew it was a loaded question. It wasn't just, what's your name? It's, what do you think you're doing? This is only a role that can be done by certain people. Are you saying that you're the Messiah? And John the Baptist very clearly says, I am not. Now this is the first time in the book of John that we have the word Messiah. Obviously, a hugely important word, Christ or Messiah, and it has tons of Old Testament background to it. Here's the bottom line that everyone would need to know. The Messiah is the Lord's chosen one to rule, reign, and redeem. The Lord's chosen one to rule, reign, and redeem. So John the Baptist is saying, I am not that person. I'm not the one chosen to rule, reign, or redeem. Now verse 21, then they ask him, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? He answered, no. You might think, why are they asking him those two things? And the answer is, in Malachi 4, verse 5, we read about a figure like Elijah who would be important in the day of the Lord. And in Deuteronomy 18, we read Moses promising of a greater prophet, a future prophet. So they're going down the list of important figures in God's prophetic plan. Not a prophet, but the prophet. A person like Elijah, or Elijah himself, or the Christ, and John the Baptist has denied all of them. His denial is notable because many people who are charlatans want such titles to be attributed to them, and yet he refuses them all. Why? He's refusing them because of someone greater than him. I want you to think for a moment about how rare it is for someone to spend their whole life promoting someone else. To spend all of their energy to make much of somebody else. In our culture, we do that normally if it has gained for us. You might have a stage parent who invests a lot in their child in the hopes that that will bring prominence to them. You might have someone who promotes a relative as their agent in the hopes that that will also mean gain for them. John the Baptist is promoting someone, and it is only loss for him. In this earthly world, he gains nothing. He lives an incredibly irregular and austere life. Why would he spend his whole life promoting someone else without any personal benefit? And the answer is because John the Baptist genuinely believes that the person that he is promoting is everything he says he is and more. That he is the Christ, the anointed one to rule, reign, and redeem. So in this passage, John the Baptist is introducing someone who he believes is much greater than himself. And notice how that humility is characteristic of those who know this greater person. So now verse 22. So they said to him, who are you? You need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? And now verse 23. He said, I am the voice of one crying out 
in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah has said. Now, we, we opened our worship today by reading Isaiah 40, verses 1 through 5, and perhaps you recognize that's what John the Baptist is quoting here. That quotation is from Isaiah. That right away lets these people know that John the Baptist is doing what he's doing on the basis of divine authority. What he's doing is not his own wish or dream or inclination, but divine revelation that he's acting in obedience to. But the thing that he's quoting is important because in the ancient world, to make straight the path was the work of a herald to announce the coming of a king. There's somebody coming, and we need to make straight the path. Now, I think in our modern ears, we're so far removed from this time and place that a little bit of history is helpful. In the ancient world, you did not normally have paved roads. If you want to communicate between places, if you want to travel between places, you had to figure it out. Just make a path as you went. The exception was the coming of a king. When a king would come, then a king would send forth engineers and architects and an ancient department of transportation, if you will. They would clear things and they would pave the king's highway. So when he says, make straight the path of the Lord, he's telling us up front that there's a greater king coming. So every other time, if there's a boulder in your way, you just have to go around. If there's a gully, then you're going to get wet. But when the king comes... He can remove the boulder. He can fill in the gully. He can make straight paths because of his value. And if that's what they did for earthly kings, like Solomon or Sennacherib, how much more so this greater king? That's why Isaiah 40 doesn't say remove boulders, but remove mountains. And it doesn't say fill in gullies, but fill in Valleys, because this is an incredibly great king. It's the king of kings who's coming. So the expectation is an earth-shattering, cosmic, kingdom-dawning king. John the Baptist is talking about drastic change. Now, the Israelites would have had a history with this. In the book of Numbers, when Moses is leading the people out of Egypt, there are two times they would like to use the king's highway, and they're told they can't. They go to the kingdom of Edom. Can we use the king's highway? It'd be faster. We'll even pay you. We'll give you cattle. He says no, and so their route is much worse. Then they have the king of Sihon. Same thing. Can we use the king's highway? No, so their path is much worse. So the principle is this. When the king comes, he levels paths, and he fills valleys. He rearranges everything. Preparing for him means recognizing the king will construct his own pathway. And yet, instead of asking his listeners to pick up shovels or hammers or wheelbarrows, John has them being baptized. Thus, John's understanding of Isaiah 40 is that the coming of the king means a willingness to open your heart to his mountain-removing and valley-filling work. You see? For the king to come must mean that I'm willing for the king to level whatever he needs to level to fill whatever he needs to fill, to make straight my crooked heart. Hence why they're being baptized. So verse 25, they ask him, then why are you baptizing? In English, it doesn't come through nearly as aggressively. They're saying, what do you think you're doing? 
If you're neither the Christ, nor the Elijah, nor the prophet, what do you think you're doing? And John answers in verse 26. John answered, I baptize with water. But among you stands one you do not know. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. In the ancient world, if you were a rabbi and you had disciples who would follow you, you could almost ask them to do anything. They would follow you, live with you, learn from you. But there was a request you weren't supposed to ask them. You were not supposed to ask them to touch your feet. That was considered beneath a disciple. Even servants normally wouldn't be expected to carry out that kind of work. Or if they did, it was the lowest of the service they would do. You see what John the Baptist is saying? Take the lowest social, cultural act of service. And John says, I'm below that in relationship to this person. This person is far greater than I am. This person has a right for loyal servitude from me. And that leads us to letter A, the first of the four applications we'll give. If the paths need to be made straight by this king, and he has the right to make them straight, and if he's so great that John is not even worthy to untie his footstrap, then we must receive this king as king. As king, then, we joyfully and gladly accept a service role where he leads and we follow. Isn't it true this time of year? We sing Isaac Watts, probably my favorite hymn writer, and one of his best hymns, Joy to the World. The Lord has come. Let earth, you know the rest part, receive her king. And then we sing, these are words from Isaiah 40. Let every heart prepare him room. But how many of us who sing that have any clue what that means? That means that I let Jesus be king and I let him level whatever he needs to level and fill whatever he needs to fill. I allow him to behave as a king. Now let me acknowledge for a moment that the word king in our country, because of our American revolution, probably only has negative connotations. You know, words have a denotative meaning, like what they mean in the dictionary, and they have a connotative meaning based on your experience. For example, when I was growing up, an insult we would hurl at each other would say, man, quit acting like a baby. And then now that I've had five little babies cry through the night, I realize that is a serious insult. <laughs> you could not say worse than that. Because now I have connotative meaning to the word. All right, so in, in our country, we hear the word king and we hate the word. We hate the concept of a king because we just think a king by definition must be bad for all of us. But did you know, most of human history, the livelihood of everyone rose or fall based on the king. At, at home, I've been introducing my boys to Robin Hood. Um, I don't know if that was the smartest thing, because they have a rubber band and a straw this morning. <laughs> uh, they were trying to do a bow and arrow in the front pew, so I need to think about that a little more. But we've been reading about Robin Hood at home. And I love Robin Hood. That was one of my favorite books as a kid. And so to try to help their imagination have hooks to hang it on, I let them watch the Disney cartoon Robin Hood. You know, the one where he's a fox, right? That one's great. The, what makes that one so great is Prince John is like this thumb-sucking, wimpy sort of leader. And as good as Robin Hood is, as much as he can help, at the end of the day, 
Sherwood Forest and Nottingham needs the return of the right king. They need King Richard the Lionheart to come back because they all intuitively understand our hopes rise or fall on the right king. Now, almost all of our ancestors would have thought that way. They would have thought good or ill is having the right king. And so think of it that way. To receive Jesus as king is the best news because he's the best king. And as we'll see in the verses that follow, he's the king who lays down his life for his sheep. So therefore, it is not a scary thing or something that should cause us to rebel or rebuff to receive the king as king. But I also don't want you to miss, to receive him as king does mean that like John the Baptist, I joyfully take the position of servant and allow him the position of king. And let me tease out what that means. Because if I remain king, even though I claim that I believe in Jesus, but I want to retain the position of king, then I won't actually trust Jesus with things. In fact, the way I'll relate to him is on a bartering or bargaining situation. I'll say, Jesus, if I do this, then maybe you'll do that. And if you do this for me, then I'll do that for you. Let me tell you how that works out. If you have a bartering or bargaining relationship with Jesus and you don't get the thing you think he ought to give you, you'll be really, really mad at him because you think he's your assistant. You think you're the king and he's the assistant. And how come he didn't do what you told him to do? But this is exactly what John the Baptist is saying we must not do. You make straight the path of the Lord because it's God's highway. He's the king. And so if you trust him as king and that thing you thought he ought to do doesn't happen, then you can respond like this. Lord, I really thought I needed that. But I trust that you're removing a boulder or filling a valley in my heart and that you're doing the kingly work you need to do. That's what it means when we sing, Joy to the world, the Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room to level, to fill, to alter the terrain of our heart. So letter A, receive your king as king, not as assistant. Now verse 29, here's why he's the kind of king you should gladly receive. The next day, he saw Jesus coming toward him. This is the first introduction of Jesus in the Gospel of John. Now he's entered the scene. And this is the first thing said about him when he's present. John the Baptist said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. I don't think there's a better verse here. If you're someone who memorizes scripture, writes it on a three by five card, this is the one to meditate on this week. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Just think on that, dwell on that, worship on that this week. John will tell us at the end of the book in chapter 21, verse 25, that if he wrote everything there was to write about Jesus, that there's not enough manuscripts in the world to contain everything that he did. That means that whatever he did select was selected because it's vitally important. Let me say even more. John is un totally different from the rest of the Gospels. Chapter 13 through 20 are just one week. Chapter 1 through the middle of chapter 2 are just one week. John the, John the Gospel takes just two weeks from the whole life of Jesus. 
Everything else is quick flyover. So this week and the last week is like the whole gospel. So that means what we have here in verse 29 is really, really, really important. Of all the things that were said about Jesus, you need to know this one. He's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. From the Passover, they have a lamb, spotless, slain, blood on the doorpost. They survive only because of this substitute lamb. But how does Jesus become the substitute lamb? Remember when he takes Passover with the apostles at the Last Supper, he says, no, this is my body. This is my blood. No longer will you look to sacrifices that are done year after year. Now, the lamb is not on the table. The lamb is at the table. The lamb then goes to the cross. At the cross, his blood is smeared on wooden posts. But unlike the years and years and years of the Passover, this lamb says it is finished. There is no more sacrifices to be made. They were all looking forward to the perfect sacrifice. That's a once-for-all sacrifice. But very importantly, the lamb who was slain was raised by the Father as a vindication that he is what he said he was. All that Jesus said and claimed is true. That's why God raised him. Jesus had never failed. He had never sinned. He had never misled or misspoke. So he is certified as truth through his Father. The text says that he takes away the sin, and then it says, of the world. The world is used in the Gospel of John to indicate an undeserving group of rebellious people who have pushed away our king, and yet the king dies our death. I want you to notice that anyone in the world can receive this salvation, but everyone in the world needs it because long lay the world in sin and error pining till he appeared. Lamb of God is striking because they would be used to, in the Old Testament period, gathering man's lamb. But this is not man's lamb. This is God's lamb. So therefore, the Passover lamb is being transferred to a person. And not just any person, but God's person. I want to read a true story to you about how powerful this verse is. Charles Spurgeon wrote this in one of his memoirs. In 1857, he wrote, a day or two before preaching at the Crystal Palace, which was their new auditorium, I, Charles, went to decide where the platform should be fixed. And in order to test the acoustic properties of the building, because remember, they had no microphones, I cried in a loud voice in various places on the stage, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sins of the world. This was a massive building, And way in the back, here's what Charles said, in one of the galleries, a workman who knew nothing of what was being done heard the words, and they came like a message from heaven to his soul. He was smitten with conviction on account of his sin. He put down his tools, went home, and there, after a season of spiritual struggling, found peace and life by beholding the Lamb of God. Years after... He told this story to one who visited him on his deathbed. That's how powerful verse 29 is. This is the gospel news. There's a lamb that's God's lamb. He takes away our sin, anybody's sin, 
And all we do is come to him. So that's letter B. Come to the king who takes away sin. Trust the king. Trust Jesus as our lamb. John is known for the thing he did. He baptized people. Now, baptism is something that sadly Christians have often fought with each other about. But there's one thing that nearly all Christians agree on, and that is what baptism symbolically represents. It symbolically represents that I have uncleanness that can be cleaned. I have filth that can be removed. I can be washed. This is what Jesus Christ does. He is the someone else who washes away our sin. And that's what their baptism was meant to show what their trust was in. They would receive the Lamb who can take away the sin of the world. So letter A was to receive our King as King. Letter B was come to the King who takes away our sin. But before we get to letter C, we'll pick up in verse 30. And all of these verses are, I think, still unpacking how we make straight the path of the Lord. We receive the King as King. We come to this King who saves us. But now verse 30. This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. As we pointed out last week, John the Baptist in earthly terms is about six months or so older, but in eternal terms, it's not even comparable. And so he's recognizing Jesus has pre-existed and preeminent. So now verse 31, I myself did not know him, but for this purpose, I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. It's striking that John the Baptist would say, I myself did not know him. Of course, he would know Jesus, his cousin. I mean, from birth, he would hear about him. But he must be referring to this. I did not recognize and trust that he was my Messiah until the moment that I baptized him, and we'll read in a few minutes, as God there confirmed that he is who he said he is. The testimony of God appears to have been what opened John the Baptist to fully embracing Jesus as the Christ. Verse 31 again makes clear why he's baptizing people so that they would put their faith in him to reveal him to Israel. So now verse 32, John will give the account of the baptism. And John bore witness, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. Now the work of the Holy Spirit, we have to admit, as Jesus says in John chapter 3, in many ways is mysterious to us. It's, it exists in some ways beyond the purview of human comprehension. Jesus will compare the Holy Spirit to the wind, In John 3, you can see the effects of wind. It pushes a tumbleweed through a street, but you can't see the wind itself. But every once in a while, the Holy Spirit does something demonstrable so that you can see the Spirit. And this is one of those rare occasions. The Spirit takes the form of a dove so that it can be seen visibly that God the Spirit is pleased with Jesus, will dwell on him. In that same event, God the Father will say out loud audibly so it can be heard, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Those two things, the Spirit resting on Him and the Father saying I delight in Him, are taken from Isaiah 42 verse 1. 
Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit on him. Therefore, what's happening at the baptism is a confirmation that this is God's Messiah. This is that one. This is that king. You might wonder why I keep using the word king. Um, I think there are several reasons from this passage. The first is if you're going to make straight the path, you're making straight the path of a king. But the second is this text here. For the Spirit to descend and remain on someone is a really big deal if you know the Old Testament. Here's a quick synopsis. God had always promised kings. Go back to Genesis 17. God told Abraham kings would come from him. And when kings finally came, God gave his spirit in a special way so that they could rule well and lead well. Now, the coming of kings was a long time coming because God's people rejected and rejected and rejected. So we have the book of Joshua and we have the book of Judges. And then God's people got so mad, they wanted to make sure they had a king that was nothing like God, but was instead like the nations. And that's what they got when they got Saul. And God is so good that he still gave Saul the Holy Spirit to help him rule well. But Saul rejected and rejected and rejected. And so God chose a king after his own heart. That king's name was David. And we read this in 1 Samuel 16. Arise, anoint David, for this is him. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed on David from that day forward. Verse 14, the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul. Do you see what's happening? The king Saul, who was given the Spirit's power to rule well, but resisted, lost the Holy Spirit's power to rule well, and it instead went on David. Now, when David sinned badly in Psalm 51, he knew that he too could lose that power to rule well. And so in Psalm 51, he said, Lord, take not your spirit from me. Does he think he can lose his salvation? I don't think so. I think he's saying, I I don't want to lose the power from God to rule as king well. Here's where all this comes together in John chapter 1. The Holy Spirit does not just endow Jesus initially. He remains on Jesus to confirm that he is pleased with the kind of king Jesus is. Because Jesus is the only forever king. All other kings fail, except for this one. Jesus doesn't need the Holy Spirit to be born again. He doesn't need to be regenerated. He doesn't need to be saved. This is the Holy Spirit's confirmation that he is king. He's the perfect king. That leads us to letter C. If he's the perfect king, then we must yield to the king's construction to change our lives in accord with his purposes. Now, the, the order of what I'm saying matters a lot. So we receive the king, and receiving the king is what bears fruit that we've received the king. The fruit does not save us. The change behavior does not save us. We turn and trust in the king, but if we have turned and trusted in the king, we will walk in the king's new way. And the king will do work in our life that shows that he's the one constructing his kingdom in our actual living. In the metaphor from Isaiah 40, he will move mountains, he will raise valleys, he will make straight the path of the Lord. At home on our fireplace, we have a box, and in that box are wooden car tracks. Uh, The wooden car tracks you can put out in any design you would like. As you put out the design, 
The kids can put their cars on them. And I've noticed a recurring thing that we're working through is one child will make the track, and if another child comes in later, he wants to remake the track the way he likes it. So the first maker of the track gets upset with the the new person in the room who wants to remake the track. If Jesus is the king that can construct the highway the way he wants, then we don't have the right to lay the tracks. He does. We don't have the right to decide the design. He does. That by definition is his nature as king. We yield to his construction because he is the forever king, the perfect king. Ultimately, we exist for him so that he can make his track. Over the years, I've talked with many people who have certain things about God that they just don't like. And over human history, those things tend to change. So whatever speck of space and time you're on, there might be something about God you don't like. Some specks of space and time really don't like that God forgives. That's not normally our problem now. Other specks of space and time really don't like that the Bible records places where Jesus has a winnowing fork and he judges wickedness. I remember once preaching through a passage where Jesus separates the wheat from the chaff and the chaff is burned and the person afterwards was so angry. How can there be people who are burned? How can there be a God who punishes sin? That was the peace they just could not accept. And I'm sensitive to that. But friend, whatever our thing is, we don't lay the tracks. He lays the tracks. That's what makes him king. The king constructs a highway that's just and perfect and wise in his infinite knowledge, even if it doesn't always make sense to us. King has the right to construct. So now, prepare for the fourth and final one. Just two verses here at the end. 33 and 34. This is the person that the Spirit descends on and remains, but then John goes further. This is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. Humans, at best, can baptize one in water. But Jesus, as God the Son, has the prerogative to direct the ministry of God the Spirit. He directs God the Spirit, and God the Spirit, in turn, directs people to him. God the Spirit glorifies God the Son. God the Spirit sends people to Jesus as Jesus sends the Spirit on them. Now verse 34. And depending on what translation you have, your translation might say this is the Son of God, or it might say this is God's chosen one. So verse 34. And I've seen and borne witness that this is the Son of God. The Son of God or God's chosen one are both possible Textually, But if you look down to verse 49 and you see Nathaniel's testimony, you'll see that they're both true in either case. So John 1 verse 49, Then Nathaniel declared, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. The old prophets, Ezekiel 36, Psalm 2, combine those things. They combine a king who is also God's son. A king who is God's son who sends God's spirit. Ezekiel 36, verse 26, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. Something only God can do is now being described of Jesus. So the Jews, the Pharisees have come. They've walked eight and a half hours. 
They've met John the Baptist, and they've heard his testimony. Here's who Jesus is. He's the king. What do you think they're going to do? You think they'll receive him as king? Give their lives to him as king? Bow the knee to him as king? If you know the rest of the gospel, you know the answer to that question. But now the question remains for us. We know who this person is. King of kings, Lord of lords. The king who dies for our sin. The king who constructs good things in our heart if we will permit him to be king. The king worthy. What will we do? And one application for those of us who are willing to receive him as king is letter D, to herald the king. Would you go back to verse 35 of John 1? I want you to see what John the Baptist does. The next day again, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. And the two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. That means John the Baptist had gained a following, and he immediately let it go. So John the Baptist apparently wasn't trying to build a name for himself or trying to gain a base for his own benefit. He was one of those rare people that it really was all about Jesus. So whatever he lost didn't matter. Heralding the king is so unusual because we live in a moment of self-promotion. In John 1, verse 19, the verse we began with, It said, this is the testimony of John the Baptist. But you know who we never heard about? Never. John the Baptist. In his testimony, he said nothing about his own life. Nothing. Nothing about himself. Nothing about where he's from. Nothing about his story or where he's been. He only talked about Jesus. Because his testimony is what a true testimony is. It spotlights the king. So letter D, herald the king. John does some things that are really unusual, and I want you to understand how risky they were. Baptism doesn't come up a lot until Jesus. Before him, it's barely hinted at at all. And from what we can tell, when people were baptized, they were Gentiles who were being baptized as proselytes into Judaism or into Jewish communities. Now, think about the effect that would have over time. If you're only baptizing non-Jews, over time, wouldn't you start to think that you're superior and they're inferior? I mean, only Gentiles need baptism. Only they're filthy. And then John the Baptist says, no, actually, y'all need to be baptized. (laughs) Everybody needs to be baptized because everybody needs Jesus. So when we think about heralding the king, I want to want you to catch what John the Baptist is showing us. Everybody needs Jesus Christ. No one in your purview and no one in this room is ever beyond the need of the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. But something else John does in the baptism is interesting. When Gentiles were baptized, it was always self-administered. They would baptize themselves. But this is different. Now they're being baptized by someone else in the name of someone else. They're being baptized in trust 
in Jesus the Messiah. That means their salvation must come from outside of them. It must be in Christ alone. But the final thing we learn from John is the power of self-forgetfulness. I don't know if you're like me, but when I struggle witnessing, and I do struggle witnessing, God has to help me. I struggle because I start to think about how it will affect me. How will they receive me? How will this change our relationship with one another? What might be the collateral of me taking the risk to tell them that they need Christ to take away their sin? And with John the Baptist, we see the freedom and power of self-forgetfulness. Testimony has nothing to do with him. If people do come to him, he's happy to send them to Jesus. And friend, I want to encourage you that God can give us the same Holy Spirit and accomplish the same power in our witnessing. We can make much of Christ, have the freedom of self-forgetfulness, and herald the King. Let me pray for us this morning. God, help us to receive Jesus as King, not as assistant. He is such a servant and such a blessing, but He is our Lord. So may our heart desire be like what John the Baptist will say just a few verses later. He must increase and I must decrease. Father, thank You for the Lord Jesus Christ being the kind of King that should be easy to receive because He's a King whose crown is one of thorns. He's a King who dies for His subjects, giving His life. So Lord, we don't have a selfish King. We have an unselfish King who is selfless and sacrificial and good. So this morning, if anyone's on the fence about trusting Jesus with their heart and their life, May they see how good and selfless He is. Even as Christians, though, we have to admit at times we have areas on the map that we don't want Jesus to go to. But remind us today that He is going to make straight our crooked path, and that might mean removing boulders and filling valleys. So help us to permit Him to be King. To allow Him to demo anything that needs to be demoed to build whatever has fallen and to relinquish our illusion that we are in charge. And then, Lord, give us the self-forgetfulness to herald this king so that we can think about how great he is and how those who are around him need him no matter their background. In his name I pray, amen. You've been listening to Josh Scally, pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. For more information and free access to other messages, go to ebcraleigh.com. That's ebcraleigh.com.